Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Linux and Open Source News Podcast. I'm your host, Nick, and this is the show where we cover everything that happened in the Linux and Open Source world in the past week. So, this week we have a bunch of interesting things. Uh, we have OpenSUSE Leap announcing that their next release will be pretty much an immutable distro, even though that term is not really suitable for this kind of systems. Uh, we also have Google pretty much announcing that they're giving up on their Fuchsia, Fuchsia OS uh, for the general public. We have the Steam Snap creating problems for Valve. We have FlatHub looking at having better quality app listings. We have a study proving that online search is getting way worse, at least for product reviews and a bunch of other things. So as always, if you want to dive deeper into any of these topics, I left all the links to the articles I used to build this show in the show notes. If you want to support the show, there are also plenty of links in the show notes as well. And if you want to get these little audio news podcasts on a daily basis, 5 to 10 minutes every day from Monday to Friday, then you can subscribe to the Patreon or become a YouTube member on the YouTube channel And you'll get exactly that, a daily recap of everything that happened in the previous day. So, now let's begin. OpenSUSE Leap 15.6, which is a distro plan for June, is the basic release of OpenSUSE built using the traditional model, much like Fedora or Ubuntu are built. And 15.6 will be the last of its kind, because Leap 16 will not be the continuation of this distribution on its current model. Leap 16 will instead be built using ALP, or ALP, for Adaptable Linux Platform. This is a build system that SUSE developed to be able to build many different distros using one single build system. And it's pretty interesting because it lets them build uh, rolling releases, it lets them build fixed releases, uh, something more advanced, something more more suitable for various workflows. It's an interesting system they put in place. But this is a major change because it does mean that Leap 16 will be what we call an immutable operating system. It's, It's a bad term because these distros can be changed, it's just a different way to change them. Basically, that's also what we talk about when we say image-based operating systems, where the base operating system is by default read-only. What you install is either in containers, in containerized app uh, formats, like for example, flat packs or snaps, but you can still add packages to the base system. You just use a different tool to do so, and you generally have to reboot to get access to those changes, although some distros let you access them immediately. It's basically another way of building a Linux distro that adds more security, more reliability, it lets you always reboot on a working image if an update went wrong. It's another way of using Linux. But that's where Leap16 is going. The base system will be based on macro-OS, which is already an existing uh, OpenSUSE uh, image-based operating system, and the rest will be added probably through containers or containerized apps like Flatpaks. As such, it seems like Leap is now going to be focused on what they call cloud-native workloads. It is described as combining the benefits of an advanced enterprise server distro with user-friendly maintenance and security, which does seem to mean that it's not 
really meant for desktop use anymore, or at least not the general public desktop use that might have used uh, OpenSUSE. And this is a major departure in how the distro works and is operated. And so the OpenSUSE team has contingency plans to either extend the life of Leap 15.6 uh, when it's released in June, they will probably try and make it last a bit longer if Leap 16 isn't suitable yet, or they might even release 15.7, but that's like the worst case scenario, uh, so they can make sure that Leap 16 is as good as it can be. And as usual, I find the communication around the ALP ALP platform pretty nebulous. I think it's really hard to wrap your head around what they're trying to explain here. Maybe it's because I'm not a, a like server-focused person, uh, not a sysadmin, but it does feel like they don't really quite know how to explain it, or at least not for the general public. But the end result is that Leap will probably no longer be focused on regular desktop users. It will be more tailored towards either workstations or servers. For desktop users, you might want to use something like Tumbleweed or Slowroll, although both of these are rolling releases, Slowroll being more tested and more stable, and they might not fit the bill for every Leap user. So I will steal one of the jokes a patron made, which is maybe it's time to leap to another distro if uh, Leap 16 uh, is not something that you find appealing. Now let's talk about Fuchsia. Fuchsia was announced by Google a long while ago and it was touted by a lot of people as the future of Google, something that would replace Android or Chrome OS. It would be at least the base for these operating systems. Uh, there was like this vision that Google wanted to move away from Linux because they didn't necessarily want to be tied to that entire ecosystem and they wanted to have more control over where things went. And so they started work on something called Fuchsia, which was a kernel and set of operating system tools. But it looks like this thing is going to be relegated to way smaller use cases or maybe even abandoned because Google announced that they would stop trying to bring the Chrome browser to it. And if Google doesn't bring Google Chrome to this operating system, it pretty much means they have abandoned any plans to bring that to the general public. And if we combine that to the history of Fuchsia, uh, they saw significant layoffs at the beginning of 2023. The team made it clear that they would stop working on a workstation build of Fuchsia, so nothing for general computing, meaning that Chrome was basically the only remaining user-facing project for Fuchsia. And now this is also canned. So Fuchsia is now absolutely intended as a developer tool only, and it's probably going to stay the base system for some integrated smart home products uh, that Google has in their Nest range, because Fuchsia is already in their Nest smart thermostats. But yeah, Google basically realized that replacing Linux as the base for your products doesn't really make sense when you've invested so much time in the Linux kernel and integrating in your project, and you can already benefit from the work of so many people to complement your own. It never really made sense to try and ditch it for a brand new operating system, at least not for mass market computer devices like Android smartphones or Chrome OS laptops. And so it looks like Google agrees now they're gonna center their efforts on something else. And yeah, Fuchsia, I would say is basically dead, at least where the general public and computing is concerned.
Now it looks like Ubuntu's insistence on snaps is causing issues for Valve because the Steam snap is full of problems and broken features and it generates a lot of bug reports that should really be addressed to the snap package itself and not to the Steam project. Timothée Besset, who is a software engineer for Valve, said that people should not use that Snap package on Ubuntu, that they should use the official Deb package instead, and that people who didn't want to use the Deb should use the Flatpak, even though that Flatpak is not official or from Valve either, but it's apparently way more stable and way better than the Steam Snap. Uh, he also said that Valve might start displaying warnings to users of the Snap package to tell them where they should send their bug report. So it looks like it's actually a pretty big issue, and it can be, because if your bug tracker is getting spammed by problems you cannot deal with, you still have to take some time to answer the bug report to tell them, hey, it's not on us, it's on the, the Snap package. So uh, yeah, address your bug report to Ubuntu. And even if you just have to copy-paste that answer uh, once you've identified where the problem lies, you still have to handle that issue, close it, and it's going to plague your statistics and your productivity. So it's a big problem, even though it's not a hard thing to close. Uh, you still are getting bombarded by email notifications and issues that you cannot do anything about. And I think this all circles back to unofficial repackaging of applications by distributions or by third-party people. Just stop doing it. If there is an official package that works for your own distribution, why would you create another package? Like, if LibreOffice distributes a deb officially or a flatpak officially, don't repackage LibreOffice as a deb or an RPM. It's already there, it's already usable, and everyone can already use it. Same for Steam on Ubuntu. They have a deb package. Why would you repackage that as a snap when there's already a deb? And same thing for Red Hat. They decided they would stop repackaging LibreOffice because they have an official flat pack. Why would you waste time repackaging something that is already available for your own distro? If there is no official package for your distribution, then sure, unofficial packages are great. But if there's something official, don't waste any time. Whether it's for Steam, LibreOffice, or anything else, just, just stop doing it. A lot of users don't understand that a package is not built by the official developer, even with all the warnings and the official tags and the check marks or whatever. And app developers are the ones that have to deal with all these issues, all these bug reports. They have to identify whether the bug concerns their application or the package itself, especially with containerized formats that can introduce a bunch of incompatibilities. And virtually no user will assume it's the package's fault. So it's always the app developer that will have to deal with that. So yeah, it's a problem in the Linux community. And I think uh, this issue with the Steam Snap illustrates that perfectly. And now it's time to tell you about our sponsor. And as always, it is Thunderbird. You all know about Thunderbird. You know it has a, a strong revival these days where the team has grown exponentially. They have a lot of funding now from user contributions. And so they've completely redesigned the entire email client, contact manager, RSS feed reader, and it looks 
amazing. It is now super customizable. You can replicate the old interface if you prefer it. You can have something much more modern that looks really nice on Linux or any other operating system. And it's the email client I use nowadays. I completely replaced Geary and Kmail and anything else, uh, webmails that I used, because Thunderbird just does it all. It looks good. It integrates well with my Linux desktop. I just really enjoy it. And they have some pretty big projects for the future, like bringing an Android version of the app based on Canine Mail. They have started work on an iOS app as well. They want to have sync between computers and between the mobile apps to sync your tags, your archives, uh, maybe even your plugins. It's just a wonderful email client. So if you haven't used Thunderbird in a while because you felt it was maybe a bit too old or it didn't look quite nice enough, give a shot to the new version. I left a link to the flat pack in the show notes, but obviously uh, your distro might have packages for it. And if you're on Windows or Mac OS, you'll find download links on their websites as well. So thanks Thunderbird for sponsoring this episode of the show. And now let's keep going. Now, since we were talking about containerized package formats, uh, we're going to talk about Flatpak and Flathub. It looks like Flathub has revised their guidelines to try and promote higher quality applications, especially higher quality app listings, because apparently Flathub has noticed an influx of apps that either lacked metadata, lacked update info, didn't have the correct tags, had really bad icons that weren't legible or were had just very poor contrast, or apps that used outdated screenshots that didn't accurately reflect uh, the quality or the state of the application. And obviously all of that combined gives some, some kind of Windows Phone store feel. Uh, if you ever used Windows Phone back in the day, you know that we had a ton, I say we because I used it, uh, we had a ton of really bad looking app listings with terrible screenshots, really bad app icons, really bad names as well. And so it didn't fill you with confidence that what you were installing or using was safe or was good enough. And if you're coming from something like the Mac App Store, which is really well designed, has a bunch of guidelines to ensure that app listings look good, if you end up on a, on a Linux App Store, you might quickly find some really bad looking things that really make you feel using a subpar system, which is generally not the case. So Flathub will start by highlighting the apps that have the best listings. They'll actually provide a checklist uh, for the quality of that listing. So developers, when they submit an app, will be able to make sure that the description is well formatted, that their app icon looks decent, has good contrast, doesn't overuse shadows or stuff. Uh, they're going to make sure that the screenshots represent the app, that you have update notes and stuff like that. Developers will be able to see these ratings so they can fix their listings and make things look a bit nicer. And to encourage developers to actually follow these guidelines, Flathub will also at some point start curating some applications on the homepage of the website based on these ratings. So they'll start with giant banners, much like what we have on every single app store, but they might go further than that. So this should also lead in the end to better pages, not only on the Flathub website, which I'm sure not many people use to download applications, but also in the various graphical app stores that we have on Linux. Because in the search results, if all app icons look good and aren't like stuff from the 80s, uh, if the app listings all have the information that you're expecting, then it's much better as an experience for virtually every single Linux user. So that's really good in my book. And if you want to know why it is important to focus on this visual or descriptive 
focus on, on applications, just head over to the website called App Image Hub. It's the most unappealing thing ever, not only because the website looks really old, but also because every single app icon or listing is terrible there. It doesn't give you confidence in the quality or the trustworthiness of the applications you get there. So good job, FlatHub. You might as well tackle this issue early uh, before Flatpak gets even bigger. I think it's a very good area to focus your efforts on. Now, it looks like Ubuntu isn't necessarily happy with the current state of GNOME's performance, because 24.04, which, remember, is an LTS release, will include a few patches that aren't in upstream GNOME yet. Uh, that's something that they already do with triple buffering. Uh, it's a patch that's been floating around for five or six years, I think, and that GNOME still hasn't merged upstream. There was a merge request, but it's not coming for GNOME 46, apparently, as far as I could see. But Ubuntu has that patch included for the longest time, and it does give much better performance on lower-end integrated GPUs. And so they're adding more stuff on top of that. Uh, the first patch will be one to allow using dedicated NVIDIA GPUs to accelerate the copy of the contents to an external monitor when it's plugged into the dedicated GPU on Wayland. It's a bit specific, but currently uh, those frames that are generated are being copied using the CPU, which is way slower for obviously image-based stuff, which should be accelerated using the GPU. And so it causes pretty bad performance when you plug in an external monitor on an HDMI port that is linked to an integrated NVIDIA GPU, for example. So that's a great patch to include. And there's also a fix for some mouse cursor stuttering problems. Uh, this is a regression that was introduced in Mutter 45 with their new thread to handle the mouse cursor. There was apparently an issue with that as well in some cases. And so Ubuntu will fix that, even though GNOME didn't add these patches. Apparently, this patch set doesn't have any known bug, so it looks like it's ready, but they aren't included in the upstream GNOME 46 that Ubuntu 24.04 will run. So even though it's an LTS, they decided to take the gamble and implement those patches. I think it's a good idea. Uh, I wonder why GNOME isn't more reactive on implementing those things, because if there were major issues, they would be pointed out and discussed in these bugs, and so probably Ubuntu would feel that it's not a good idea to put them in an LTS. But if Ubuntu feels that on their long-term support distro, they can take that risk, I don't know. I think maybe those patches should be in GNOME already. We also got some more details about improvements coming to Plasma 6 and KD, and those will notably concern fractional scaling. It looks like they've done a lot of work to improve text rendering uh, when using fractional scaling to reduce the blurriness, because as you know, if you run your display at 125% scaling, it sort of creates like quarter pixels, which means that stuff is going to look blurry because quarter pixels do not exist. So you have to have a pass over that to smooth things over. And so this is what will land in Plasma 6, but also it will touch up some icons that weren't appropriately scaled. They look jagged and, and pixelated, and so they will no longer look like that, uh, especially mouse cursors as well, including the little bouncy icon that you might see when you start a program on KDE by default. I always remove that feature because it annoys me to see app icons bouncing all over the place, but by default KDE has that, and so this will be appropriately scaled as well. 
Now, there are also some usability fixes planned, uh, like removing the ability to drag a bookmark from the places sidebar of the file manager down into another bookmark. Uh, if you try to reorder your places sidebar in Dolphin, you know that if you're not careful, you can miss the drop target and you can put a bookmark inside another bookmark, which will move the entire folder into the other folder, which is very annoying. So this will be disabled. Uh, they will also avoid accidental hot corner activation when you're selecting text in an application. So if you just uh, put your cursor and drag it down to the bottom of the screen, but you had a hot corner on that screen corner, it's going to activate something. So it's now going to be disabled by default. And they've also added a new option in the shutdown, logout, and restart uh, pop-up uh, that, that, that appears when you click those buttons to install updates and restart. So now you have the option to just reboot without installing the updates or to reboot with installing the updates, assuming you use a distro that uses offline updates, which I think a lot of KDE distros do nowadays. So now you can save some time if you really do not have time to wait like the three or four minutes that it will take to install an update, uh, then you can skip that. So it's good to see that fractional scaling is a big focus for Plasma 6. It's already not that bad in 5.27, but I think in Plasma 6 it will reach full maturity, especially on Wayland, and it really does like a very polished release. I'm glad they took the time to make Plasma 6 as good as they could instead of pushing it early and having something that is half broken or very buggy. Uh, I can't wait to use it in February and make a bunch of videos about what's new in there because it looks like it's gonna take more than just one video review for everything that they've added. Now this week, I happened upon an interesting article about AI legislation, uh, and there's a lot of debate on that front. Uh, people are wondering whether AI tools should have their specific set of laws to regulate them, or maybe they're already covered by the entire set of current laws on, on libel, on copyright infringement, and stuff like that. Or some people say they should not be regulated at all because they will advance humanity or whatever. And most of the important AI work is also done in the open. There are a lot of open source projects on that area. And so I thought it could be interesting to mention it here. So it's just a proposal. It's just from a fellow at a research center on natural and artificial intelligence. He's called Jonathan Bartlett. He's also a software developer. It's nothing offered by a legislator or a country, but I thought the idea was pretty interesting. It doesn't tackle the copyright aspect of AI. Uh, this is the major issue, in my opinion, with these tools, but it's for legislators to, to see if it's already covered by existing copyright law or not. Uh, this proposal is more about trying to identify the content that is AI-generated or AI-generated and human-generated to give people an indicator of the confidence they can place in a specific piece of information. So basically the idea would be to apply content markings through HTML tags for AI-generated works on various different levels. The first level would be content that is purely AI-generated with no one assuming human responsibility for that content. It's basically the lowest trust level. You would get a small tag saying, hey, an AI created this, no one supervised it, so maybe it's right, maybe it's wrong. Use that with a grain of salt. Then you would have content that AI generated, but is also backed by a company or a person. So you can have a bit more confidence in its veracity. Someone looked it over and said, yeah, that feels right. 
then you would have content that is a combination of AI and human work, in which case obviously the human is responsible for it, and then you would have content that you can't really determine the, the origin of, for example, user-submitted content, like a comment or a user post on various platforms, you have no way of telling who made it uh, if the user doesn't identify that as AI-generated or not. So I think it's really an interesting way of looking at things because it would inform users better with visual tags on whether what they're looking at or what they're reading, what they're watching is from a reliable source or not. Uh, if you want to place your entire faith in AI-generated content, you're free to do so, but at least you know that no human has ever touched what you're watching, and so you, you're more aware of, of what it is. And I think it would go a long way. Of course, it has issues. It's pretty voluntary, like websites that use this content would have to agree to use those markings if it wasn't enforced by any law anywhere. But I think it's an interesting proposal. It would be beneficial. It would let people know if they feel they can trust something or if they feel they shouldn't. Uh, it doesn't solve the issue of misinformation, but at least if the tag is applied, you would know who is responsible for that content uh, if it's deemed as human created, or at least if a human looked over what the AI created. And since we're talking about the general quality of the information online, uh, if you use Google and you felt the quality of the results has been falling steadily, or if you use Bing or DuckDuckGo and have the same feeling, it's not just an impression. Uh, a German researcher team examined a bunch of product review queries on Google, Bing, and DuckDuckGo for a whole year and they found what they describe as a torrent of low-quality content, especially for product search, that completely drowns any useful information. They said that a sizable part of those results were just SEO spam. Uh, they had no value, they didn't give you any useful information, and obviously that's the state of the internet right now. A bunch of websites are just chasing the latest algorithm meta by trying to game the search engine to make their pages be more visible and gain more ad revenue. It's basically the clickbait strategy that you're seeing everywhere online, on YouTube, on TikTok, on whatever. You're trying to grab people with a catchy headline or a catchy first two seconds of your video and, and just trying to gain more views with that. I, I have been guilty of that on my YouTube channel as well with a few clickbaity titles here and there. It's the general state of the web right now, and if you noticed it, well, now it's confirmed it is the case. Researchers found that between the study and its end, results improved by a little bit, but overall, uh, judging from previous studies, they found that there's a big downwards trend in the quality of results. And it's not just on Google. They also found that Bing and DuckDuckGo were falling as well. And they even found that Google fared a bit better than the other two search engines. They also warned that AI-generated spam will definitely make things worse really quickly if it goes unchecked, uh, and that goes with the previous article I talked about, like we do need a system to let people know what is AI-generated or not, uh, so you can at least skip the thing that you don't want to see. Now, of course, a Google spokesperson answered that. They said that this didn't adequately cover the usefulness of Google Search, because obviously it's just focused on product reviews. 
And that's true, but also product reviews are a big part of what people use search engines for. And it's also a pretty important thing, because when you're looking for a product review, it generally means you have an intention to buy. So it's a good reflection on the commercial aspect of the search engines. If you're willing to spend money on a product, then the quality of search result has to be very high, because if not, then you can either get scammed or be like manipulated by fake reviews or low quality content. It's an important decision for a lot of people to spend their money. And so it's one of the most important aspects of a search engine. And personally, nowadays, I do not use search engines when I want to find information about a product. I try to find a video online from a channel I trust. I look at very specific websites that I do have confidence in, and there's a few of them. Uh, I stick to various podcasts that I want to listen to, but yeah, I don't use search engines because the results will just be flooded with crappy stuff, fake reviews, and, and I have to double check everything, which I don't have time to do. So search engines I just don't use to make an informed buying decision because I know it's just not going to be worth my time. So I hope things will get better in the future, but I'm really worried that AI-generated reviews or spam content or fake product reviews will land very soon and will make things even worse, especially since it's way easier to re-optimize articles uh, using AI tools to, to chase the latest uh, SEO meta. So these articles will probably always be on top of the results compared to human-made ones. Now, still on the topic of Google, uh, the company will now be complying with the EU's Digital Markets Act, this time by letting you unlink the various Google services that you use. Uh, this means that if you decide to unlink those services, they will no longer share data between services, and thus it will reduce the efficiency of the user profile that Google is building on you and the efficiency of online tracking as well. Now, this will apparently be limited to EU citizens because obviously it's an EU law, so Google will not take steps to address that uh, in the US, for example, or the UK or the rest of the world. But you will still be able to unlink stuff like Google Search, YouTube, the Google Ad Services, Google Play, Google Chrome, Google Shopping, and Google Maps. So for example, what you search for in Google Search will no longer be used to recommend videos on YouTube, or the videos you look for on YouTube won't be used to recommend products on Google Shopping, the places you search for on Google Maps uh, won't be used to target you with ads for restaurants or stuff like that, uh, the apps you're looking for on Google Play will no longer be tailored to you using what you search for on Google Search, everything else. And generally, your browsing history on Google Chrome will also no longer be used to, to feed all of those services. So it's a big step forward to reduce the efficiency of the tracking. It will not make you private, because Google will still collect data on you on every single one of those services if you use them. But at least they won't be able to cross-reference that data between services, so their user profiles will get less and less creepy as time goes on. And this is the result of this Digital Markets Act, which basically means those gatekeeper companies like Google have to give uh, way better experiences for their users and also let more competitors enter the markets because right now with all these integrations, they can basically lock down every market, including the tracking and ad market. Uh, so that's probably why uh, the EU wants Google to let people unlink those services. Now, if you remember a while back, uh, there was a tech fund called the Sovereign Tech Fund. It's a German thing. Uh, they injected 1 million euros into GNOME. 
But now the same tech fund has parted with about 200,000 euros to support the GStreamer project. Uh, if you don't know, GStreamer is a big multimedia framework that powers a lot of the backend for open source applications to play any type of media, audio, video, uh, even video chat with WebRTC to stream stuff and more. It's a giant project, but it's not very visible because it's a backend project. So the money will go towards improving the security of GStreamer. They apparently found a bunch of security vulnerabilities in their implementation of media streaming. And so they will transition all of these vulnerable components from C to Rust, because apparently Rust offers better security for the memory, uh, for accessing the memory. But they will also use that money towards implementing new features and better supporting VP8, VP9, H.264, and H.265, which are all very popular uh, codecs uh, and formats that you can use. So it's very interesting to see these kind of projects getting some funding because obviously GNOME was a very visible one. It's one that is used by Red Hat, by Ubuntu, by SUSE. Most distributions have a GNOME variant that is generally the official default one. So it's a big project and it was like understandable that this project would get some funding. But GStreamer has been doing its thing in the background. And so it's cool to see that these projects aren't forgotten, especially since they're pretty much the backbone of the multimedia experience on Linux. Now we also have some relatively scary news. Uh, there's apparently a big security flaw in Apple's, in Qualcomm's, and in AMD's chips that would let an attacker steal virtually everything that's in the GPU's memory. Now, attackers do need to have a, an attack already in place to access the operating system itself. But if they have that, they can now launch the newly discovered leftover locals attack. And this will let them grab a bunch of things from the GPU's memory, including queries and responses generated by large language models that run on these GPUs. So apparently Nvidia, Intel, or ARM GPUs are not vulnerable to this attack, but about everything else is. Apple already shipped fixes in their M3 and A17 SoCs, and apparently fixes are coming for the other affected manufacturers. But in the meantime, it's a pretty nasty flaw for people who run AI-related things, because generally what you run on your GPU is not personal information related. It's generally graphical stuff, compute tasks, and so it's rare that you'll find many things that are important, like sure, if you manage to access the frame buffer and get access to like a password being typed or, or the contents of a password manager, the visual contents, like the image where your password is displayed, there was an attack doing that uh, recently on Nvidia GPUs, I think, that can be a problem. But what is stored in the GPU memory is generally not really impactful. But if you run AI-related workloads, you might have passed a bunch of queries that are very personal uh, to a chatbot, and this data will be in your GPU memory because AI work is generally GPU accelerated. So if you use AI stuff, be wary of this flaw, be wary of what you install, where it comes from, because you never know. Uh, you, you might already be infected or you might be vulnerable to a few attacks, uh, at least until manufacturers ship a fix for this issue. And now we'll finish this episode with the gaming news. Uh, we'll start with the release of Wine 9.0. It's the newest stable release of Wine since Wine 8.0 point something. 
And there is a lot in that new stable version. It's basically the compilation of every small update since Wine 8.0. Because if you don't know Wine 8.1, 2, 3, up until, I don't know, Wine 8.20 something, they are all unstable releases. So 9.0 is the compilation of all that work. Which means that compared to 8.0, it has a bunch of improvements to running 32-bit Windows apps on a 64-bit system with the implementation of Windows on Windows 64, also called WoW 64, nothing related to World of Warcraft. Uh, there's the experimental Wayland driver that implements a lot of what's needed to run any game natively under Wayland without the performance penalty and the potential issues linked to X Wayland. This Wayland backend will not be enabled by default because there's still some work to be done, but I would expect that before the end of the year, this will be completely done. And so probably Wine 10 will have a fully working Wayland backend, which might be the point where Proton also starts working natively on Wayland, because if you don't know, Proton is based on a stable version of Wine, and then they add some patches on top of that. There's also better ARM64 support on Wine. The DirectX 12 implementation uh, that is in Wine is also improved. There's better audio and video support, and there are a lot of touch-ups to the underlying systems of Wine. So I would expect uh, to see a Proton 9 point something version coming soon, using Wine 9.0 as its base, and it should bring better compatibility with games, with applications, better performance, and hopefully we'll see some great improvements to Wayland support during the lifecycle of Wine 9, so we can finally ditch X11 even for gaming, maybe next year. And today I also learned about the Hangover project. Uh, this is a Wine-based tool that lets you run 32-bit Windows apps on ARM-based Linux systems. So basically it's running Wine, inside on an emulator like QMU, FEX, or Box64 to translate the x86 Windows instructions into x86 Linux instructions and then those into ARM Linux instructions. So it would let you technically game on an ARM device. Uh, you could play an x86 only game, which is most games, on an ARM device. So Hangover 9.0 is now out. It's obviously based on Wine 9.0 and they have now fully integrated Box64 support. And they also now have a Debian package for easier install. Now the future plans include trying to port this to RISC-V systems so you could still play x86 games on a RISC-V computer even though these don't necessarily exist for the general public just yet. Uh, there are a few uh, single board computers but uh, yeah, they're not really mainstream just yet. So it's a very interesting project. It would be very useful for people running Asahi Linux on an Apple Silicon Mac for example. It would mean you would get access to a bunch of games with performance penalties, obviously, because it's running in an emulator. Uh, or it would also be useful to future-proof Linux it, if at some point ARM computers become the norm in the PC space or RISC-V takes over, then we'll at least have a nice compatibility with a bunch of Windows programs and games as well. So this will conclude this episode of the podcast. As always, if you want to dive deeper into any of these topics, all the links I used are in the show notes. If you want to help me make more of these episodes and keep the show going, there are plenty of links to support it in the show notes as well. 
And if you want to get these little news tidbits on a daily format instead to stay up to date every day, just subscribe to the Patreon or become a YouTube member. Any tier will give you access to the daily podcast. It's from Monday to Friday. It's five to 10 minutes every day with three or four news items, including some that I don't cover in these weekly news shows because they would get way too long. Uh, So if you prefer having a daily little show, you can get that as well. So thanks for watching. Thanks for supporting to everyone that supports the show. And I guess you will hear me in the next one next week.